Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, we'll hear from cinematographers John Toll ASC and Frank Griba about their work on the film Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas was directed by siblings Andy and Lana Wachowski and German director Tom Tiekfer. The film follows six nesting and intertwining stories spanning hundreds of years, beginning on a 19th century freighter and culminating with a tribal post-apocalyptic human race on the brink of extinction. It's been said that if something can be written or imagined, it can be filmed. But still, people have said that author David Mitchell's expansive novel was an unfilmable property. So when I spoke with John Toll ASC, I first asked him, how do you film an unfilmable novel? Lana and Andy had the property, uh, and they were uh, developing a script. And I think there were several versions of the script, and it was based on the structure of the book. But the book had a more linear structure than the film. It was sort of chronological. In the book and the film, there are six different, some people call them stories, some people call them chapters, that span 500 years with six different main characters. In the book, this first story takes place in the 1840s, and the last story takes place 300 years in the future. So each story was told chronologically, except that during the course of the story, the story was never complete. So in the first story, it got to a certain point in the story, and then the story just stops mid-sentence, and it picks up the next story, which is a story that takes place in the 1930s. And the 1930s story starts and then stops mid-sentence, and that goes all the way through to the, the sixth story, which takes place uh, in uh, 300 years in the future. And that story continues all the way through, and then the next story picks up where it left off, which is a story that happens um, 100 years in the future, and so and vice versa. So it was, a, it was a strange structure to begin with. And the first couple of passes on the script that Lana and Andy did, they attempted the same type of sort of fractured structure. But they came to the conclusion that it would be very difficult to start a movie, stop telling the particular story, pick it up, and then, you know, maybe an hour, an hour and a half later in the movie, finish it. So they they knew that wouldn't work, which was the, you know, the basic dilemma of trying to turn that, that novel into a script. But eventually, because they had done some films in Germany, had had met Tom Tiefer, and uh, they were telling Tom about it. And Tom said, well, let me take a crack at, at a, a different approach. And Tom came up with the idea of the structure of the script as it was shot, which was to intercut between all the various characters and their stories continuously throughout the film. And all those stories were told chronologically, but rather than individually, they were essentially edited, so you were constantly cutting from one, one story to another and going from the 1840s to the 1930s, 1970s, present day and two different stories in the future. So you're constantly intercutting between all those stories, but not in any kind of regular pattern. It was all sort of story and character driven. 
And Tikfer ended up coming on board to direct half of those sequences. You know, I'm not sure of all the details, but at some point they decided, hey, you know, let's all direct the movie. You know, let's all three, all three directors direct it. There were some very practical reasons, I assume. It was a 190-page script. You know, there's just a lot of practical reasons why it made sense. It was a lot to take on for even you know, one director, much less, you know, even Lon and Andy working as as a team. Uh, you know, we consider them as one director and Tom a one director. I mean, so basically, there are three directors. They felt with three directors, there was enough stuff here that you could three directors can handle. And they, I think they actually were having a lot of fun collaborating in the development of the script and really working as a team. And that essentially, that's, a, that's a, a feeling that really came out of the whole project. It's like they were such a great collaboration and that extended to all aspects of the film, you know, for both sets of crews. But in a practical way, because both teams, and it was like Team Wachowski and Team Teakford, were shooting simultaneously. It was a much more efficient operation rather than trying to stretch out one team shooting for, you know, which would have been essentially six months. You know, so you had two teams shooting simultaneously for three months. And there was a practical production efficiency to that, much less a sort of a burnout factor in terms of one particular unit stretched out over six months or more shooting six different stories. There was a certain fatigue factor that was bound to set in. So I think there were a bunch of reasons why it made a huge amount of sense to split the movie up and have two teams uh, comprised of three directors and two complete first units. Did you know going into the job that there would be two cinematographers working on the film? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was that was all part of the first discussion. That was interesting. I met Lana and Andy. I, I had not known them at all prior to the invitation to, you know, essentially take an interview. And they were in Berlin and I was in L.A. And uh, we had an interview via Skype. It was good, you know. I was interested in the idea of working with them. Uh, we kind of hit it off, and and it just sounded interesting, you know. And they're incredibly creative, and they're energetic, and so the idea of splitting a movie in half and sharing, uh, you know, one half of a movie with another cinematographer, I thought was kind of cool. It could be fun, and and I did know Frank Grieby, but I knew his work, and I knew that he'd always work with Tom Tiefer. And who set the look for the film? And did you have a specific look for each era? Well, there was a great deal of discussion about that while we were in prep. And um, while we were in prep, everybody, everyone was there at the same time. We shared office space at the studio. Both units shared office space, you know, but there were two separate cinematographers, two different art departments, two different uh, costume departments. You know, it was all separate but equal and also very collaborative. And so there was a lot of discussion about how we were going to try and connect the stories because the that is one of the major themes of the film that even though these people are separated by decades and centuries there's a common theme that sort of connects them and there's a suggestion of even um, reincarnation that somehow this this character might actually be the same same person throughout the time so anyway there's a there was a definite concern about visually connecting the stories. There were various ideas. Some of the ideas were more about transitions, editorial transitions, than than visual emphasis. 
you know, I mean, the visual emphasis was the editorial transition. That was one idea. And there's, and there's quite a few of those in the film where uh, we actually reuse a set that, that actually was used in, uh, one example is a set that was used for the Sewn Me sequence, which was the uh, Papa Song's uh, uh, fast food restaurant. It's also the same set in the Cavendish story where Tom Hanks' character throws the critic off the roof, you know, so they, you know, it's that kind of thing, you know. So subtle, but uh, subtle, but you know, there's a suggestion of it, and some people get pick up on it, and some people don't. And there was some split screen stuff where you see old the Six Smith reading his letters to um, uh, Frobisher, and you know, connecting them that in, in that way, you know, connecting those two stories. But in terms of a photographic approach, I think we all sort of separately came to the conclusion that because there was such a unique visual design to each individual story, you know, based on the, not only the period, but, you know, the circumstances of the characters. There was great production design. There was great art direction. There was great costuming. Um, you know, basically all the visual elements had not only a great and a lot of talent behind it, but incredible input from the directors. So each story had its own sort of unique visual signature and we talked around it a bit but in the end I think we without being um, um, overly emphatic about it we just came to the conclusion that each individual story had its own unique look and to actually try to manipulate a look that somehow connected it to some other story might feel a bit heavy-handed so it's kind of like I came to the conclusion that we didn't really need to do that in terms of trying to connect the stories because once the movie got going, there was there was there were some obvious connections and that's the whole that was the whole point of the story and I don't think it needed any more help than we gave it. In my mind, all we needed to do was create six great-looking individual stories or movies unto themselves, and I think the nature of the film itself would connect all the all, all, all of them. I didn't I didn't really think it needed any additional photographic help, quite honestly. Speaking of connections, I noticed that one of the things that you did to link the different time periods was match the screen direction and action between scenes. I think that's what we're, the best connections were essentially in editorial transitions like that, as opposed to trying to create a certain palette for one story or overlap a palette or, you know, it was sort of a, the whole visual style, the photographic style of the picture is sort of a naturalistic, uh, dramatic style to begin with. And each, each individual story lent itself to a version of that based on the period and the, the circumstances of the story. So I think that that's where the photographic emphasis went in my mind and and I and I believe that's in Frank's mind, because we never agreed on anything other than that when we started shooting. And once we started shooting, we really didn't have that much contact because we we're usually in a different country from one another. You know, so it wasn't like we we're you know sitting around watching dailies together, planning the the next uh, uh, part of our part of the shoot. Did you use storyboards or previs to plot out how the scenes would fit together? Oh yeah, yeah. There was a huge amount of storyboarding and, and previs, and a lot of uh, renderings. You know, so there was there was a huge amount of visual 
preparation, you know, in terms of uh, developing a style and ideas for individual sequences. So that was the other part of how the visual style emerged. There was an enormous amount of work that had been done in terms of trying to establish a look for the individual sequences, which we which we relied heavily on, and sometimes, and sometimes uh, we just ignored it, you know, but it, uh, it sort of got us going in a in a, in a definite direction, particularly in terms of production design and palette. So we had a good idea what, what that was, and that was all essentially the stuff that Lana, Tom, and Andy had, had worked with their individual production designers and art departments in the, initiating. You know. How closely does the film adhere to your previs? It wasn't like hard and fast, you know, put the storyboards, pin the storyboards up on a big poster board and, you know, and sort of like knock them off, you know, as per the storyboard. It was like Lana and Andy, because I worked with Lana and Andy, and Lana and Andy are incredibly uh, visually articulate, visually uh, creative directors. They developed the storyboards. They knew what they were, but they never considered themselves locked into them. It was sort of the basis of an idea. I find that you, when you shoot a film, you're sort of finding the story, no matter how prepared you are, no matter how how much you think you're going, you you know what you're going to do on the day. As you begin to shoot a film, the film sort of develops its own unique style, and especially when you have people who have the ability to make adjustments and 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 recognize that hey, you know, this is a better idea. So that's what we did in our unit a lot. I think I believe that's the way Tom and Frank work. So uh, we we did have the opportunity on um, picks to see each other's dailies. Uh, you know, it wasn't like we were sitting in the same room at the same time actually looking at them because it was a pretty full schedule and we just sort of looked at dailies whenever we could. I could see Frank's dailies on pics on the computer, uh, which is sort of, you know, the encrypted website where you can get and look at dailies. I was looking at my own dailies on a digital projector at the studio. But because we were each, in, you know, so locked into our own individual unit and our own individual stories is that I would, I would refer to what Frank was doing at times. And I'm glad he's, I'm glad he's shooting those three stories because, you know, as once we got going, the idea of actually shooting all six felt like it would be, have been overwhelming because it was, it was, you know, I, I can't say it was like an extremely difficult shoot, but because we were, because you're constantly going back and forth between three stories and three different periods of time, you needed to sort of adjust your head, you know, like you'd get, and if you're shooting one film, once you get shoot, once you start shooting a film, you sort of get a feeling for what you're doing on a daily basis. And you, there's a, there's a sort of a continuity of look and, and just a continuity of storytelling. When you're telling three different stories at the same time and you're constantly shifting gears and trying to give each individual story, you know, something most appropriate for its time and place, and you do that for two days on one and then five days on another and then back two days on that one and then skip ahead and do three days. And, you know, it's sort of like a little bit more schizophrenic than the normal situation. Where did you end up shooting your stories? We started in Mallorca, Spain, for the 1840s story on the on the ship. And then we also, in Mallorca, we basically, it's an island we were based, based there for the ship. And also... Uh, is very has very mountainous, rugged terrain, so we shot a lot of the Tom Hanks Halle Berry story, the Zachary story, 
which was the uh, futuristic story of the 300 years, you know, sort of the post-apocalyptic story. And so up in the mountains and along the coastline. So we shot we shot there, and we were there, I don't know, three, four weeks. And then we went to southern Germany, a forest in southern Germany, where we also shot a lot of the Zachary, Halleberry, uh, Tom Hanks story. Then we went to the studio we worked in um, in Berlin, at the Babelsberg studio, this where we show all, all the interiors. The beginning of the story, we were, at the beginning of the schedule, we were in New York, and simultaneously, uh, Tom and, and Frank were in Scotland and England. And then uh, they moved also to location in Germany. They shot, they shot a lot of exterior locations around Berlin, and as well as uh, stage work. So, towards the end of the schedule, we all wound up in the at the stage in. Um, in Babelsberg uh, simultaneously. And, but by that time, whatever we had established for the individual stories had been well established, so we just sort of continued to do what we had uh, initiated. What were some of the challenges posed by this split production? We didn't really have a lot of time for prep. I, Frank and I didn't, you know, like have a, a lot of time for official prep. And and, and even though we had the... Uh, all the visual reference and in previs and in storyboards, that it was a it wasn't like it was a 100% button down uh, situation, and it was kind of like we knew where we were going. And plus, because of the nature of starting on location, we started on location. We were gone away from the studio for several weeks, and sets had not been completed before we left. So no matter how well, how many plans you have, and no matter how many how many set design sketches you might have, uh, you know the physical reality of getting there and actually putting lights in place and and getting you know, the rigging and get a essentially the the preparation before the day you shoot. Uh, it was a little bit difficult because we were essentially in different countries when when it should have been happening. So. It, we always felt like I always felt like we were slightly behind in terms of preparing individual scenes. So I think that was sort of the challenge, and new ideas would come up, which meant we would be scrambling even more. So, yeah, in that way, I felt that most of the movie was a challenge, but because the, the nature of the people we were working with, you know, starting with Lana and Andy, they were incredibly flexible and actually knew what the problems were. It sounds like working in tandem with another cinematographer was the obvious choice. Well, I think for this particular project, I think ultimately it made a huge amount of sense. I mean, one one unit and one director could have you know, shot the movie, but it would have taken a long time. And ultimately, I can't believe they could have done it for the amount of money that was spent on this movie. I mean, the movie had a $100 million budget, which is a lot of money, but given the scope and breadth of the project, I think that you know everybody did a pretty good job. Another aspect of this film is the way it uses a small group of actors to cross genders and, and portray a wide range of ethnicities. Uh, I can't think of another film that's done this. No, and I don't know anyone else who has either, but... Uh, it's kind of like it was like, <laughs> let's see what happens. If they're willing to take, if you got actors like Tom Hanks and Alan Berry and Hugh Grant and this guy, Jim Broadbent, who did a great job, you know, are willing to take those kind of chances. You, you know, it, we all could have 
run into a wall and it's been a complete disaster. But at some point you just gotta say, fuck it, let's go for it. Some of the actors' transformations required extensive prosthetic makeup. Did that make them at all difficult to photograph? In some of the characters, when when some of the lead actors would show up as a minor character in somebody else's story, some of that was actually sort of all work in progress. I mean, some of those minor characters, we didn't know who they were going to be uh, when we started shooting and just assumed they would bring in some other actors, and all of a sudden, you know, Tom Hanks would show up in somebody else's story as, you know, the hotel manager. And so it's kind of like, and so the fact that the actors would have got on board like they did and took the chances they did was fantastic, you know? And I think that was one of the more interesting aspects of the film, just going into it, like, okay, all right, Tom Hanks is going to play six different characters and Halle Berry is going to play horror five. What kinds of photographic techniques did you use to sort of roll off the effects of the prosthetic makeup? Uh, you just try to do your best to not make it look like makeup. Yeah. But they had a, they had an incredible challenge in the, make, in the makeup team because they did not have a lot of time to prepare it. Some of the ideas came up even after we started shooting, you know, and those those are incredibly tough prosthetics. And they had some digital help with it, which was understandable. But it was it was incredibly challenging for them. So, especially when you don't have a lot of time and you know to really put it together. And the schedule was very difficult for people because some of the actors would be moving from one country to another overnight to show up as a different character in a different story. That happened especially when we were at the beginning of the schedule when we were in Mallorca and, and Tom and Frank were in um, both in uh, Scotland and England. And we had, you know, Halle Berry was flying back and forth constantly. Tom did as well. So it was challenging in all respects for everybody involved. I understand that the extensive makeup work in the film was a key consideration when making the choice between shooting on film or uh, shooting digitally. Before I got involved in the picture, there was a uh, consideration of shooting digital. And Frank, because Frank is, you know, Frank and Tom had been around forever. Frank was always, Frank was in Germany. Frank shot some makeup tests and that everyone looked at. And so based on those tests, it was, they decided that for a lot of reasons, not just the makeup, but just for the overall look of the film, as well as just the enhanced resolution that film was the way to go on this project. And I was all for it. I was, I was happy to hear it. I, I thought film would be not only the best look, but in the most practical solution for this particular film, especially in the situations that I where I was shooting on board this uh, four-masted schooner in mountainous terrains in forests. I mean, they weren't inaccessible, but it was it was much more efficient. It really was much more efficient having film cameras, where we could just basically, when necessary. Just take a camera very easily, take a camera wherever we needed to take it, plug it in and shoot, you know, which is what we did quite often, as opposed to the extra baggage that's required to use digital cameras in a way that they should be used in terms of actually having that kind of control and uh, to manipulate the image in the way that you want to manipulate it in a digital set situation. I mean, we could have used light meters and exposed digital cameras that way, but I don't think that was the most conducive way to use them. So film made the most sense for this particular project, and I was uh, ecstatic to hear that we were shooting film. 
sometime later, I had the opportunity to speak with cinematographer Frank Griba about his work on the film. And we started our conversation where I left off with Toll on the topic of shooting film. It was very interesting because the Wachowskis said, uh, we want to uh, make the movie with film stocks. And Tom said, no, I'm very interesting. And uh, with, uh, um, with Alexa... And okay, I said, okay, let's do some tests, side-by-side tests. So, and we did some, it was different lenses. We shot with anamorphic lenses and old lenses and always side-by-side. And, and always after the screening from the test, they said, yeah, but you know, we need the grain and uh, this feeling like film stock. And we did another test, another discussions, and I said, after a while, I said, I mean, if you want that this has to be looked like film, we have to shoot on film. And then we, and everybody said, okay, let's shoot on film. And there's another aspect that was very important was uh, the makeup and the prosthetics because we have so many uh, specials for the actors. And if you do it on digital, you see everything. It's much more complicated. And uh, Filmstock is um, very kind of this. What format did you end up shooting? We shot spherical. We did some anamorphic tested, and um, when the uh, visual effects team come, come, came on board, they said, oh, it's too expensive because uh, it takes more time. And, it's, um, and you need, uh, I think, not 4K, you need 6K or 8K if you're doing some specials. And we have so many VFX. So they said it's expensive to shoot in anamorphic. In his interview, John mentioned that the two of you had to treat Tom and Andy and Lana as one person. Yeah, more or less he's right, because it's, we never forget it's one movie. I mean, there's six stories, but it's one movie. So they are more or less one person. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting when he said this. Yeah, I, I agree. But there are two cinematographers. That's true, yeah. At the, at the beginning, they said, ah, we are shooting in Berlin and shooting on stage and we are very close. But in the end, they are so far away from us. I mean, there was only uh, I think three or four days where we are very close. So we are, I mean, 50 meters walking distance. But uh, in the end, we saw the rushes. They saw our rushes every day. And sometimes we talk a little bit. How are ideas shared between you and John? I think we are soulmates, <laughs> yeah, John and me. You know, we are. I think um, that's why maybe they're, they're. That's the reason why they want John Tor because maybe he's close to me in, in a way. Because yeah, because you know when you when you see the framing and the camera movement, it's it's very close to my work. John and I talked a little bit about the way the film links stories through matching cuts, framing, and camera movement. Uh, but in what ways did you develop a continuity behind the scenes, for instance, uh, like with film emulsions or lenses and things like that? When we did the test, uh, John and me, we, we did some tests, and um, I said, oh, I like the Master Primes and the Master Zoom, and, and I prefer Kodak. And he said, okay, yeah, I'm with you. Because 
I think he's he likes to work with Panavision, but he's he was very open and he said, okay, let's let's make some tests. And he liked the master primes, and um, I think there was uh, only uh, he did a lot of shots with the ingenieur zooms, zoom lenses, and uh, I had one ingenieur with me, but the uh, the basic was always the master primes as the prime lenses, and the Kodak. Uh, the film stock was the same. Did you aim to have a different look for each era, or was there a single connective style? Um, for the story who was placed in the 30, it was Frobisher to make, um, I wanted to use only tungsten light, but sometimes I have to change. And for the 70, uh, I used the fluorescence light. And for the contemporary scenes, uh, on the stage I used tungsten, and on location, I mixed up. I mixed the HMI or fluorescence light. One thing that just occurred to me is uh, that you're working across these distant time periods in the story, and the way people perceive light and use light has changed drastically in the process, like moving from candlelight to fluorescent light. Was that something that you had to take into consideration? <laughs> I think I'm... I'm mostly um, influenced by movies, you know. Um, I saw so many movies and um, I think in a way from the contemporary, I'm very, um, um, this is more the, the, I said more or less the Cone brothers. Yeah? They inspired me, the lighting and the framing from the Cone brothers. And um, from the 70s, it was all the movies from the 70s. I mean, uh, Gordon Willis' work is so amazing. I mean, he's a great master. And the 30s was um, only my ideas. I, I think uh, I, I saw the location and I said, okay, let's do it like this. You know, also, I'm not so, um, you know, I, I do a lot of work from my belly. When I see a location, I said, okay, how can we manage this? Okay, we have this time, we have these actors and who is there, okay, and the continuity, what is before, and you know, you, you think a lot of, and then you started, okay, let's make in that way, and then we do it in that way. So we are, we have a lot of freedom here. We can do whatever we can do. <laughs> it's good. What kinds of considerations did you have to make for the actor's prosthetic makeup? I think today you have to be so good in makeup and everything you can't see any difference, and, and and it was so perfect. So I have a lot of more freedom. I have not to make some special light here and special light here because then you lose your freedom. You lose you. You can't move the camera here or here because then we have something special on the left or right. Or so I think the makeup department was so great. I mean, that so good job. You stand in front of him and you said it's perfect. That's, I think that is so good for, for DOP to have this freedom and you don't have to make any adjustments, specials or something with light. Let's talk about the film's art direction. Uh, how much of an influence was that on your work? Ah, I mean, the art director, uh, the Uli Hanisch, I know him quite well because he works since uh, Winter Sleeper with us. So we, we talk a lot. We talk a lot of about colors and, and everything, everything, practicals, everything. And we know each other very good. And 
And um, no, it was sometimes he, he surprised me because he's very, you know, he he don't like to make uh, a simple room. It's always different angles, you know, like in the expressionism, you know, like in the old times, in the old German times, and that's make uh, sometimes the light lightning uh, the lighting very difficult. But uh, in the end, it's um, it's interesting for me. It's always interesting to have these not normal rooms on top of everything else there are a lot of visual effects in the film yeah, i mean the visual effects from my part i can only talk about my part um the we have very good producers and uh, supervisors on set and um the communication was very good because they said um do whatever you want to do and uh, I had a lot of freedom, and sometimes I came and said, "Oh, Frank, we need some different angles for the post production, but not so complicated." And in uh, Stylewise, we have a lot of um, previous for 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 scenes, special for the scene where the beetle goes from the bridge in the water, because we have to talk about every frame, because every frame cost money <laughs> and we have so many different angles and we started and yeah we can we can show it from there and from here and they said oh no oh no it's too much, <laughs> it's too much. but it's good sometimes it's good to have someone who said no it's not possible because then you we are very focused what what one what is the story and how can we tell the story that was cinematographer Frank Griba talking about his collaboration with John Toll ASC on the film Cloud Atlas. Thanks for listening. This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.